0: the person's happiness. Without that internal malice um, that so often comes when someone else gets what we want. Love is content when the other person gets the promotion that I wanted and, uh, or the prize or wins the game or got the date with that certain girl that I was planning to ask out, or whatever the thing might be. You know. Love is not jealous, but there is a kind of jealousy that is good. There must be because God is a jealous God, right? Right there in the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20, verse 4, it says, You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is under, in heaven or above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Why is it right for God to be jealous? Well, because, as we've talked about before, all worship and glory and honor has to go to God, because only he is worthy of those things. The only appropriate response of the creation to the creator is to give him all the dignity and honor that he is due. That's the only right thing. And God being right and holy in himself is jealous for everything to be right. And for him to be the center of all things is not selfishness on his part, it's what's appropriate. So he is jealous for worship. To worship statues and trees or men or imaginary gods and deities is unthinkably wrong. It is wicked in the extreme. It's a spiritual perversion. You know, if you did me a wonderful favor and I went over to your house and started thanking one of your trees, how would you feel? <laughs> you would think me either a little kooky or an ingrate, and I would be. Oh, thank you, Birch, for coming over and helping me the other day. That was so great. And What would that be? you think? That's what people do when they worship idols. God is jealous because God is good and He has a zeal for what is right. The universe is only right when he is at the center of all things. Jealousy is a problem when it does not have God's glory in view, but to be jealous for him is a good thing. Romans chapter 11 introduces us to a kind of jealousy that is good, a spiritual jealousy that we should very much desire to see in our non-Christian friends and acquaintances. The subject matter we've been discussing for many weeks now, Romans 9-11, through is Jewish unbelief. Paul has explained in great detail why the Jews have rejected Christ, both from the view of God's sovereign will and his eternal purpose, and also from the point of view of man's responsibility and motives. And the big question really has more to do, as we've said, with God's faithfulness, since Israel was the chosen nation. What are we to make of the authenticity of God's choice of us for salvation, as Paul talks about in Romans chapter 8, if the chosen people, previously, suddenly miss out on the blessings of their own Messiah? What does it mean to be chosen if the chosen ain't chosen? You know? If if they can somehow miss out, what does it mean when he promises that he's chosen us for salvation? Well, Paul answers right away in Romans chapter 9, verse 6, that they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Physical descent alone does not make one or mark one out as one of those chosen. And all that he says after that is really built on that point in chapters 9 and 10. Most of what he says in 9 and 10, he revisits and he summarizes again in chapter 11, in the opening verses of chapter 11. So let's look at that. Then we can talk about jealousy. Uh, Romans chapter 11, verse 1. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be! For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. In essence, Paul is saying, has God abandoned the Jews? He says, no! And then he says, look at me. He's Jewish. In fact, one could say, look at all the apostles. All of them are Jewish, right? And all of them are Christians. As Jews who have found the Messiah or been found by Him, they don't cease to be Israel, they are Israel in possession of divine promises. That's who they are. They are twice chosen, they're doubly blessed in that sense. This is the point Paul was making in 9:27 when he quotes Isaiah chapter 10 verse 22, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. The remnant. When we spoke of it before, we went back and looked at the story of Elijah, who, remember, the, the great prophet, he believed he was the only one left that was faithful in Israel to the true and living God. Everyone else had abandoned him and worshipped Baal and idols and stuff. And that is the Old Testament story that Paul takes up in verse 2 of Romans 11. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew Or do you not know what the Scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, Lord, they have killed thy prophets, they have torn down thine altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. What is the divine response to him? Verse 4. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way, then, there has also come to be, at the present time, a remnant according to God's gracious choice. God, by divine election, has preserved a remnant. He always has, Paul says. Out of the millions of Jews alive in Elijah's time, only 7,000 really believed. But there were 7,000, not one. And that is the Old Testament story that Paul relates this to. In verse 5, he relates that specifically to the first century The generation that saw and heard Jesus Christ in the flesh and rejected him. Most did not believe, but thousands did. And Paul says, now you can find them in the church. The church was not designed to be a Gentile institution, it is largely Gentile, but only numerically because there are so many more Gentiles than there are Jews in the world. But the church is designed by God to be a place where many Gentiles are saved and also where he keeps the remnant of believing Jews. Listen to the words of Paul from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. He says, Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles, in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you, Gentiles, at that time were separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups, what both groups, circumcision and uncircumcision, into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. So the church is the place of true reconciliation between Jew and Gentile, the promises of blessing fulfilled to Israel, and the Gentiles coming into their blessing by loving and serving Israel's Messiah. So God ordained it by His electing grace, and so it has always been. Talk about amazing timing. I was putting these thoughts together this week, you know, going through this text and working on it, and World Magazine shows up in the mail. Anybody see that issue this week? The whole issue is devoted to the relationship between Jews and Christians. And it includes a really excellent 16-page series of biographical sketches of over 100 Jews who have come to Christ over the last 500 years. It starts with the Reformation era. And there are just so many. And every generation and every age. And it it only points out um, Jewish people that actually made major contributions either to the church or the world um, or scholarship or something that had converted. It doesn't even include all the regular folks like us, you know. And it was just so many. It's a fascinating reading. And um, beyond those, of course, those hundred influential people, there's thousands of regular converts, like many of you here, that we have a number of Jewish people in our congregation this morning, who found your Messiah and, and served him. In, with integrity in the church. Jew and Gentile together, that's the church. And so the body of Christ includes that remnant that God's saving grace has called and made them one with all the Gentiles God is saving from every nation on earth. That's how He's doing it. The modern person objects to this. They say, well, why does everyone have to be Christian? Why not follow the morals of your own religion? Surely God will accept the works of Muslims and Hindus as well as Christians the flaw in that concept although it sounds very nice is the thinking that god accepts good works as a basis for salvation at all and if we've learned anything in the book of romans is that that doesn't work why doesn't that work he doesn't do that because by his standard all of us christian jew muslim mormon whatever we all come up way short of the requirements We are wicked and the scales of justice never tilt in our favor. If they put your goodies on this end of the scale and your baddies on this end of the scale, it always goes like that. The few good things you have go flying off. So the only hope of salvation is by the grace of God, which is mediated through Christ and not through Buddha or Mohammed or Joseph Smith or anybody else. Verse 5, in the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. That's a really important sentence, theologically. It is grace plus nothing that saves us. And when you add something, it isn't grace anymore. And you've lost it. All these religions add stuff and lose grace. Matthew Henry, the old Puritan commentator, said it so well. He said, Every truly good disposition in a fallen creature must be the effect, therefore it cannot be the cause, of the grace of God bestowed on him. To suppose otherwise is to destroy the very idea of grace which signifies entirely free and unmerited favor as proceeding only from the good pleasure of God and not from any worthiness in its object to produce it. And he's right. He's absolutely right. To be grace, it must be free of indebtedness to man's doing. And that's exactly what Paul meant in Romans chapter 9, verse 16, when he said, So then, it does not depend, it being salvation, does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but what? On God who has mercy. So the only way is by grace. And the Jews and their Judaism, their religious system, wanted God's favor, but as Paul says in verse 7, they did not obtain it. He says, What then? That which Israel is seeking for, it has not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened." hardened. Strong word. The rest were hardened? That's right. The elect obtained it, the rest were hardened. If anyone's still resisting the doctrine of election from Romans chapter 9, it gets even worse here in Romans chapter 11. It's even more explicit. As always, Paul backs up his thoughts from the Old Testament. First, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 29 quotes it in verse 8 here. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not down to this very day. Quoting Moses. Now there's a main subject The one doing the action in that sentence. And a main verb. God is the subject. He's the one doing it. God, and then the main verb is gave. We're in verse 8. God gave. Well, what does God give? Well, God gives love and God gives grace. Not in this particular case. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes not to see and ears not to hear. He actually hardens them in their unbelief. So they cannot see the beauty of Christ. They have no desire to learn of him. They have no interest in his coming or his sacrifice. That's an awesome concept. Talk about an awesome God. Matthew Henry, again, so eloquent as always, says, of all judgments, of all judgments, spiritual judgments are most to be dreaded, though they make the least noise. When God hardens someone spiritually, there's no outward sign, there's no dramatic effect. That person is just never going to get it. He hardens them in their unbelief. Would you prefer for God to knock your house off its foundation in an earthquake or to render you insensible to the truth? Which would you prefer? Take my house. Would you rather have a painful disease or be incapable of understanding revealed truth? Take my possessions, cover me with boils, but don't let me die in a fog of unbelief and unconcern. That should be our prayer. Spiritual judgments are the most to be dreaded, though they make the least noise. Paul goes on with the words of King David, verse 9. David says... Let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. Nice, huh? That psalm is quite interesting as well. It's obviously an imprecatory psalm. You know what an imprecation is? It's like the calling down of a curse. If you want to insult somebody nowadays that don't know big words, you can say, greetings and imprecations. That means, hi there! May the curses of heaven fall on your head. Uh, People think, you know, well, thanks, that sounds very classy. There's a whole set of what are called imprecatory psalms where um, King David or um, a person of official position as the Lord and the ruler of the nation actually has the right to call down God's judgment on the opponents of uh, truth. But Psalm 69 is interesting because it's also a messianic psalm and was recognized as such by the Jews. So it's an imprecatory psalm and a messianic psalm. And David, as the ancestor of Christ, and as a prophet, and as a type of Christ in his kingship, often he expresses himself by the Holy Spirit in terms that apply to Christ. The most famous example of that is Psalm 22. If you've ever read Psalm 22, it's an exact, perfect description from the point of view of a man being crucified, what he is seeing. And that was written a thousand years before Christ was crucified. In fact, it was written many, many centuries before crucifixion was even a common form of execution. It wasn't done in David's day. But the psalm is an incredible description of a crucifixion. That's, um, you know, David never went through anything like that, and yet he writes about it from the first person as though it's prophetic. It's about Christ. Psalm 69 is more subtle, but the verse immediately before the one that Paul quotes here, about their table become a snare and a trap. The one right before that, it says, Reproach has broken my heart, and I am so sick. I looked for sympathy, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. What is that referring to? Do you remember when Jesus was on the cross and he said, I thirst? And the Romans like a sponge and some soured wine, which is sort of this, a way to help numb the pain. That they actually, it was actually a merciful thing. And they held it up to him. The closing line is, uh, of course, referring to that there. They gave me gall for my food and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. He looked for comfort and sympathy and found none. Clear terms of rejection David is expressing here and, and rejection leads to a bad end. You will recall that on the way to the cross, Jesus passed by some weeping women. And his words to them were gripping as well. Luke twenty-three twenty-eight. Jesus turned to them and said, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me. But weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and on the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in the green tree, what will happen in the dry? When things are relatively prosperous and well, and um, God is doing such wonderful things, and they murder the Messiah, what's it going to be like when everything is wretched and horrible? And of course, that generation, especially the children of that generation, saw the complete and utter total destruction of their own nation by the Romans in AD 70. Something that really was like the Holocaust in its scope. That's not an exaggeration. The siege and fall of Jerusalem was an indescribable nightmare. Serious stuff. Scary, too. They they're not happy words. And Paul is quite straightforward about the doom of these non-elect individuals. But at verse 11 in Romans chapter 11, the tone changes very dramatically. He's being so negative about his own kinsmen here that it sounds as though their case is hopeless, but it's not. Verse 11, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. That's what he says. Look very carefully at what he's saying here. There's that word jealous. Paul has talked about his kinsmen stumbling. He talked about that earlier. Uh, a description of their clinging to their religion so tightly that they preferred it to the Messiah and threw him aside, so they could hang on to their rules and stuff. And God sent Jesus to bring God's gracious salvation, and they didn't want him. If you go back to Romans chapter nine, verse thirty. You remember when we were there? What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness. Even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Verse 32. Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. Just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Christ the foundation stone became a stumbling stone. Talks about this in Isaiah and in Peter and all that. Christ is given as the great foundation stone. They look at it, they check it out, they throw it aside and build on a wrong foundation and they miss him. They stumble. But in verse 11 of chapter 11, he says, They did not stumble so as to fall, did they? They did stumble over him, they lost out but now Paul says they didn't stumble so as to fall. What does he mean? He means that God has not finished with the Jewish people. The Jews, not just the remnant, but as a people, have a future. That's what he's saying. Part of what God is doing as he ordains the events of history is to save many, many Gentiles and through them now to reach the Jews. That's part of what he's doing. The Gentile believers, that's most of us here, have an enormous responsibility to make Jesus Christ attractive to the Jews. The Spanish Inquisition is not how we do that. Church history has not revealed a proper attitude. And what's amazing to me is how many Jews convert anyway. And that just shows you it's by God's grace because Christians have not always been kind to Jews. In fact, in many, many places, even in this country, uh, the Jews were a put-down group of people, beaten up as children, called Christ-killers, all that kind of stuff. Is that making them jealous of our Savior? God has never forsaken the Jewish people, and he never will. And Paul is revealing to us in chapter 11 what you might call the big picture. Did the Jews sin in rejecting Christ? Oh, yeah. But God is using that sin for the Gentiles and the Jews. Verse 12. Now, if their transgression be riches for the world and their failure be riches for the Gentiles, how much more will will their fulfillment be? See, Paul's thinking, he's thinking, you know, if God, being as brilliant as he is, uses their unbelief and their own wickedness to do something wonderful for the the rest of the world and have the gospel go out into the world and save all these Gentiles, what will happen when they actually do believe and come back into the, the, the thing? And then everybody is there. He says, it's going to be really fantastic. He can't wait. He's so excited about just the idea. If Jewish sin caused so much good, how much more wonderful will things be when Israel does what is right and receives all the fullness of the promises God made to her? So their very sins brought riches to the Gentiles, the greatest riches, of course, being what? The, the words of the gospel and the spirit in their hearts. And so he's musing in verse 12 about, yeah, if that happened because of their sin, what's going to happen when they believe? And at this point, Paul returns to his point about jealousy. Verse 13. I am speaking to you who are Gentiles, and as much then as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry if somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen, and save some of them. So Paul was commissioned by Christ to take the gospel to the Gentiles. He thought he was the Jewish guy. He thought when he started, he says, I am the perfect person to take the gospel to the Jews, and that they totally rejected him. And whenever he preached to Gentiles, they just believed. And he he caught on after a while that that was his calling. God called him the ultimate Jew, the Pharisee, the super legalist guy, and gave him grace, which he delighted in, to take the message to the Gentiles. And he was so successful at it. That's his calling. He's devoted to it as he is devoted to them, the Gentiles. It's a work that he rejoices in. He magnifies his ministry. But even in that ministry, he has an eye on the benefits to his countrymen, the Jews. That's what he's thinking about. It is a life-changing God honoring, love filled effect of the gospel on genuine converts to Christ that Paul is relying on to make Israel jealous. Jealous of what? A vibrant, real, genuine relationship with God through Christ. That's what they should see. Not hostility, not persecution not hatred, not standoffishness. There is an enormous point being made about evangelism here, which goes beyond just the Jewish-Gentile question. The most important thing you can do to further the gospel is to be an authentic Christian, a growing Christian. That's the best thing you can do. Not perfect, but genuine. A living faith in a daily walk with Christ makes you different from a religious person. Even a deeply religious person, integrity and commitment and contentment and compassion and a gentle spirit are things that are attractive to non-Christians, especially people bound up in legalistic religious systems. See, they believe that their system of religion, and it could be Jewish or any of these other spin-off groups that are all into this works thing, They believe their system is the path to righteousness. And when they see people who claim salvation by grace living in worldly ways and having worldly attitudes and self-centered behaviors, they shun grace. They turn away from it as religion on the cheap. That's how they see it. Yeah, I I know what cheap means. Grace, right. But, when they see grace touch a life and make it more godly and more spiritual and more at peace and more willing to give and more content and more full of love and it's not bound to all these rules it's just flowing out of the heart. They notice that. And they ask themselves how can less rules make someone more godly? They start to think about that. And that is the question we should hope the religionist asks when he looks at our lives. They should want what we have. Lukewarm Christianity doesn't attract anybody. Real Christianity offers the very real possibility that other people will want what we have. Now you can't go around putting on a show or thinking all the time I wonder if I'm making someone jealous for Christ you know you feel good. You, you can't plan that just be genuine and authentic and let God do his part dispensing grace and letting people notice you don't have to worry about them noticing just worry about being authentic and they'll notice he will always keep his remnant in the church so there will always be genuine conversions God will take care of his end but if we're reading the Bible correctly the church will not always be here There is a strong reason to believe that at the end of the age, which may not be that far away, may not be, I don't know, the church will be removed out of the world. There's good theological reasons and biblical reasons to believe that. What's going to happen then? That is the time that God has ordained to work in and through his original chosen people once again, the Jews. That will be the time that all the promises made to Abraham will be fulfilled. The text that Brooke read earlier this morning, Isaiah 65, 17 and following, that's what it's describing. The millennium. God working in and through his own people and blessing them with all the blessings he promised to Abraham. God has hardened some Jewish hearts, but that is only for a time they will have their day again. But that we will discuss next week as we come to the end of Romans chapter 11 and we'll try to close off our look at Israel in New Testament theology. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the grace that saves, for the privilege to live a life that would be pleasing to you and to make your own people jealous. How inadequate we feel for that task. And yet, it's not really of us, is it? All we do is keep ourselves in your will through our own personal devotion, our own concern, our own dealing with our own sin, our own confession, our own self-examination, our own decisions to love when others hate, to forgive when others won't, to be authentically like Jesus Christ. And if you grant us the grace to do that and we see people come to you, what a great privilege to be a part of that whole scenario. Make it happen. We thank you for the privilege to enjoy Jesus and share him with others. In his name we pray.